It was interesting. Remember, we had had the discussion, I think you brought it up, which was a good thing. We were talking about when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. When we, were, we were, yes, wrapping up Genesis. I know we were still there. Most of us, I think, use the NIV version, which is fine. It's okay. But I thought about it because I know that there are some differences between the translations. And, and you may know because you've probably seen it here for sure. And in Revelation, even more, I think, and somewhat in Daniel, if you were in those classes, that I like to use the Amplified Bible as well. And one of the main reasons is because there's a lot of parentheses in it, if you've noticed. And it, it, it serves to clarify from the original translations better the thought that is being given. So what I wanted to do is if you take your Bibles, whatever Bible you're using, and I want you to turn to these verses, and I want to just show you a couple of things. Now, by no means am I knocking the NIV, because I use it. I use it in my notes. All my, all my scripture that I embed in my notes is NIV. Out of this, I want to encourage you to get yourself, at the minimum, a parallel Bible that has the NIV, maybe, or whatever translation. If you already have the NIV, you get one that has maybe the King James Version, for sure, and also maybe the Amplified Version, and another version of your choice. The key is, is to make sure that when you're reading, especially passages that you think you know well, or, or I don't even know how to say it because you're not going to want to cross-reference everything, but make sure you're ready to cross-reference even some of the things you already know when you're studying Scripture, with especially the Amplified Version. So first of all, turn to Matthew 18, 11. Matthew 18. Oh, so one's got the NIV. Anybody got a Jehovah's Witness Bible? Just teasing. Okay, so that's one. So let, just a show of hands, how many did not find it? Matthew 18, verse 11. Okay, all right. Is it, that, yeah, that's what the NIV says. So does the Jehovah's Witness Bible, too. You, you just don't have it, right? Okay, all right. So that's one. I want to read you what that scripture actually does say, should you read the King James Version or a version of the scriptures that have it. For the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. Now, why would that be omitted? Isn't that a major tenet of Scripture? Isn't that what we base our hope on? Why would they omit that? Because of some technicality that some of the manuscripts didn't have it? That's not the point. Here's another one. Here's two of them. They're, they're almost back to back. They're, they're going to be within, uh, within a couple of paragraphs of each other. So try to find Mark chapter 9. Verses 44 and 46. Mark chapter 9. Verses 44 and 46. You already know that a lot of you aren't going to find this, right? <laughs> it's in my Bible. What kind of Bible are you using? <laughs> are there any footnotes in, in the NIV about the, either of those two verses? Yes. Okay. You know, I'm going to read you what they say. And again, the context is, is, of course, within the surrounding scripture, which I don't want to get... You don't have it? What version? You don't even have the... Um, yours is probably not a study Bible, maybe. That's why. Is it a study Bible? Joyce Meyer, Joyce Meyer uses the Amplified. Does it have it in the Amplified? the Amplified? It doesn't have it. Okay, it doesn't have it in the Amplified either. So it says here in Mark 9 and 44, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. What is Jesus talking about here? Hell. There was a garbage dump outside the city, and they kept it burning all the time to consume the garbage. But underneath, it was composting as well, so it served a dual purpose. In that heap, which is where all the refuse, all the dung in the city, you know, animal waste, all of the filthy garbage was put in that hill and burned. 
underneath, the worms kept on regenerating because it was composting all the, all the organic filth, and the rest of it was burning. And those fires never went out, and those worms never died. What is hell going to be the hill of dung? This is what he's talking about. Why is that not in there? How about Mark 9 and 46? It says the same thing. Again, he said it twice. Where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. So we're going to do a couple more, and then we're going to get into our main lesson. I just want you to, just to, to show you a couple of the more important. And there's a bunch of them. I have a whole document here full of them. Is it 48? It's listed there? Okay. Yeah, I'll post it online if you want it. I'll put it online. Mark chapter 15 and verse 28. Mark chapter 15, verse 28. And by the way, one of the things that's noted in this text that I have here is that there's more similarities, at least these instances. Are, the similar scriptures are missing from Jehovah's Witness Bible, from the Jehovah's Witness Bible. And so, have you ever had a Jehovah's Witness come and witness to you? One of the things that I've done a couple of times, which really sets them angry and makes them turn away, is ask them, you know, whatever rhetoric they're talking to, you ask them who Jesus Christ is and is he God? And they will just flip out. Short of slapping you and leaving, they will flip out. Happened twice. This is the stuff we're dealing with here. Yeah, but you slap me for different reasons. <laughs> but I slap you back, and I'm the daddy. <laughs> uh, so anybody doesn't have Mark 15 and 28, right? 15, 28. 15, 28. Mark, you, you have it in NIV? No, I have No, you have no. New King James. Okay. It's not in the NIV. All right. And that scripture says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Again, what did Jesus Christ come for? Right, and that's, that's actually a reflection from the Old Testament. Let's see. A couple more, two more. Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. You notice how the ones that are missing, whether they're footnoted or not, deal with not presenting properly the basic tenets of what we believe. It's not the mundane pieces of other stories or, you know, John did this or Philip did that. And it's look at what's missing. This is what I wanted to bring to your attention. Every single one of these that you're pointing at that you have in here is italicized. Is italicized in? The print is italicized. Yeah, in, in, the, in the Amplified Version. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that I, and so I don't know exactly why, but, that's, but all I'm saying is, again, I am not, you know, as you know, I keep saying this, I am not uh, an exponent of, of any seminary or anything else. I'm just like you. I'm a regular guy just learning this stuff because it's the stuff we do want to know and need to know. So these are the things I've come across. So I'm not, a, I'm not a, a, a scriptural expert. I'm just showing you as one average person to the next what to look for as you study because the deeper you go, the more of these little landmines you're going to find, even throughout history. Like I had mentioned to you last week or la week before last when I was talking about the Pharaoh. Remember there was a Pharaoh who came to power which, who did not know Joseph. If you start studying a little deeper, you'll find out it's just not a different pharaoh. He was from a different stock. He was probably from Assyria. And remember I told you I was looking at the 12th and 13th dynasties of the Egyptian empire? And Joseph died right on the cusp between the two. And there isn't a lot written about it. If I dug deeper, I could probably find it, but that's not the point. The point is just to tell you and to show you, as you dig deeper, should you decide to do it? Should you be even called to dig that deep, which you may or may not want to do, that's, that's all up to you guys and, and myself. There are these little landmines that you find. And it's amazing. It seems like to me, personally, that these are put there through Satan's influence to trip up those who really want to know the deeper understanding and to mask it. 
There are plenty of Christians around who know Jesus, you know, and him crucified. And they know the basic stories and the basic things that most Christians know and should know. But when you start studying deeper, there are more and more landmines for you. It's just like this. Before you became a Christian, you weren't really that much of a target of Satan because he's got other fish to fry and he's not omnipotent. But I know for me personally, when I became a Christian, Satan was, well, not Satan, but his demons, whoever he sends to deal with me, all of a sudden was my buddy. Same thing here. These landmines are not for those who don't want to dig deep. There's enough landmines for that. But there are certainly landmines for those who want to dig deeper. Okay, and that's my only point through this. Last two. Acts chapter 8, 37, probably you didn't find that. Is there any? Acts chapter 8, verse 37? You did in the NIV? No, no, in the NIV, okay. Say again? Is, does it say exactly what it says or should say in the scripture? Yes, Okay, all right. All right, so some of you have the... I'm going to read you the scripture and just see if it says it. Here's the scripture. And, it's, and Philip said, If you believe in all your heart or in all thine heart that you, that you made, and he answered and, I, and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, that is a very basic tenet. That's the only way to be saved. Why would it not be in the text? Why would it be in a footnote? And how many people who are just cur- doing a cursory read of the Bible actually read all the footnotes? There are reasons for this. And if you notice scriptures being turned around, I heard of a version of scripture that was put out in England a couple of years ago, maybe, maybe more than a couple of years ago, that was sort of making it as much as possible PC, which means gender neutral. And God was not even a him anymore. So they were making it as ambiguous as possible. Do you think that there are people who read that stuff? I do. They published it. But the whole point in understanding this, and we'll go to the last one right now, is why they do this why they do this. Every single version of Scripture is written for a reason, and it's not just to get the Word of God out. Not anymore. Even the King James Version, which I think is one of the more accurate, the most accurate translations in English by far, was the 1611 King James Version. That was ordained to be written by the King of England, and the thrust of it was to be sort of like he was the head of He was the head of things because he was the one who authorized that. So there's probably some uh, leaning in that version toward him and I don't know where those are this is one thing I believe only because if you look at every other version if anybody have the message yeah right it's, it's just a paraphrase easy to read by Matthew you and I were discussing it it's okay but just understand the thrust what is it trying to do it's trying to be easy so the masses can read it but if you look at the way it's worded there you're not going to get an awful lot of good truth out of that in in many instances. You'll get the understanding of the flow and story of Scripture. Do you see what I'm saying? The NIV was written, there's profit motive behind it. And what's happened, I believe, again, just from my point of view, from what I see, over the centuries, as you know, over time, in this country especially, the more society degrades and the less we want to know of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, There's a lot of people who call themselves Christian in this country, right? How many of them are truly Christian? I think there's a shrinking percentage of those who are truly Christian. They're mostly secular or cultural Christians, just like Jews. There are plenty of them. So they want a Bible because what does Jesus say about especially toward the end time? They have itching ears for what? To hear the truth? To hear hear, That's right, John. To hear exactly what they want to hear. So if you're a publisher and you're in business to make that buck, you're going to give them the truth or you're going to give them what they want to hear so they'll buy your, 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 your scripture. And you might put some of the truth and make it less visible by putting it in footnotes. 
So you're still telling the truth, but it's sort of off to the side. Well, isn't that what Oprah promotes with her books? Yes, type of thing. the same type of thing. And Oprah calls herself, Oprah calls herself what? You know what Oprah calls herself? Those who look at Oprah, you better be careful with her. She calls herself a, 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 an open-minded Christian. Free-thinking, thank you. Thank you, yes. Free-thinking Christian. She calls herself a Christian. Have you ever seen the stuff she purports? Unbelievable. Yes, Steve. Well, I was going to mention, I have a new living translation, which I've enjoyed immensely. Mm -hmm. And then these are all translations, King James translations. Absolutely. I, have, I don't have those verses in here. They're at the bottom. And it says in my translation, some manuscripts add verse. Mm -hmm. So, and I read that, and I'm believing what I'm reading. So it's telling me that that was added to a translation right. at one point in time. Right. Look at the King James Version and see if it was there. Because a lot of translations were found and, and looked at after 1611. Right. So find it if it's there. Because you see... Go ahead. I was just going to yeah. say, mine says just the opposite. Many manuscripts do not contain this verse. I mean, the issue is this, right? We don't have anything contemporary except a few shreds of papyrus that uh, were uncovered in the Denims. The earliest continuous manuscripts of the text are from the 4th and 5th century mm -hmm. A.D. A.D. And, and by and large, they line up, but, but some will have extra verses, and they were copied over by right. monks right. in monasteries. And sometimes, you know, a monk can add something. Sure, because it's all subject to human. Not off and forget a line. Right. And so there's a whole science of how you construct the best possible uh, interpretation out of all, right. Based on the manuscripts. And so these notes are trying to tell you, well, gee, there's, there's 11 principal manuscripts, and um, if the majority have it, then we'll, put, then we'll say it's it right. right. And put a note that it's missing in some. That's right. And, and, and vice versa. Right. If the minority have it, right. they'll leave it out and put a note that says, you know, some. Right. So this other text. right. So we can become very confused, can't we? First of all, and the other thing, and you're absolutely right, right? So that is the genesis of this, but we also have this profit motive and this moving things toward PC. Don't forget, you know, Satan is allowed to dupe people. And some of the ways he can do that is through manipulating scripture. The other thing is, is that we have these 66 books and they're the canonized books of scripture. Again, Human beings were the ones to put actual pen to paper, but we have to know for sure that whatever was preserved in the basic context or the canonized scripture is what God wants. I know I've, I've been studying the book of Enoch, and there's some wonderful things in there, wonderful things. But it never became part of canonized scripture, although, as you know, it's referenced in the book of Jude and I think one other place that even the apostles, even the disciples, even the earlier Jews actually used this text and, 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 it, and it believed it because there's a lot there. So just one more. I'll just give you one more. You're not going to find it, but I'm going to give it to you. First John 5, verse 7. Matter of fact, you go there. You'll have it there, I believe. Yes, you will have it there, but read what it says in your translation. This one you will have there. This I think is one of the worst, I don't want to say perversions, but um, one of the worst examples of taking somebody off the scent when they're reading their own Bible. What's the scripture now? 1 uh, John uh, 5 verse 7. You will have it in your Bibles, I believe. I think everybody should have it. 
Just for anybody, who, just one person who has the NIV, read what that says. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. For there are three that testify. Okay. Does it say anything, about, anything else about those three who testify? It's the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Okay, three in agreement. That's one. And then my footnote says, late manuscript, so the Vulgate testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, ah. and the Spirit, and these three are one. That's three what I was looking for. Yeah, that's Why do we need to see that in a footnote? It should be, it should be kept, not even in your footnote? So here's, so that's the last point, and that's the worst one. I wanted to save the best or the worst for last. If you are a new Christian or you're somebody who read that, you may not understand that the Trinity is an earmark of the God we serve. There are plenty of people who believe in a God. There are plenty of people who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but don't tell them it's a Trinity. We belonged in a church that believed in the Trinity before we came, and that was a culty church. No, they didn't believe in the Trinity. Well, they they, we didn't, and I made a mistake, because maybe I already did, and I didn't realize what we taught. What did we teach? No, we believed that there was the, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit was the power that they used. That's right. But they, I they, never, they used to say that that scripture was added in by the Catholic Church or somebody else to make it fit their theology. Ah, she, she grew up in that church, so she was more steeped in it than I was, and I came from nothing, so maybe I didn't really understand that point. But that's, a, but that's what, and, and how many, this church now believes that, right? Believes the truth, that is a trinity, the worldwide church of God. But how many splinter groups now have come out because they don't want to believe the truth? And that's all I wanted to bring out to you. You know what you know, and, and Jesus Christ even said, you know, when he asked, you know, who do men say that I am? And they say, oh, you're John the Baptist, and you're Elijah, and who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? And why did Jesus say he knew that? That's right. That's right. So all I'm saying is that we have to be so close to God. We have to be so close, even in this class, even what I have to teach, okay? You have to be able to filter everything through the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it will be just head knowledge. It has to connect with the Holy Spirit. And that's all I'm saying. And why did I do this? Because we had that discussion, which we all had the discussion, but you brought up that point, and I think we, we all bounced it back and forth. So did Jesus actually go to hell? Was it actually that day? And then we can start to get into this minutia. I'm conversing with a person right now who used to come to this church, and they didn't leave for any reason. They just want to go to a different church. And, you know, I, on, my, on my website, I have an email address you can shoot questions to. So he shot me a question. This long question about all of the signs of Israel and, and are they the last generation and Israel being restored. And I answered him. I gave him a long response. So he comes back and he gives me another long response. And could I show this in Scripture? And can I prove that? And can I, can, well, I understand the battle of Gog and Magog when it's going to happen. You know how I'm going to answer him? You've got to compact your, your thinking here because this is not where your life lives. Now, I understand a lot of it because I, I want to under, I, the big picture. The problem is, is that if you start dwelling on this stuff too much and you start thinking into it, because he's always telling me it's his thoughts, I think, because this is what I believe. You start sucking your mind away from studying what you really need to study, what the Holy Spirit wants you to study for what he wants you to do, and then you'll start going off on these tangents. I know because I had done that a couple of times. I try not to do that anymore, and this is where God has set me. All I'm saying is we've got to keep it simple, but we've got to have our eyes open, and we've got to make sure that we are connected with the Holy Spirit all the time. Otherwise, we will be subject to these landmines.
And that's all. The best lies ever created have what? What's one feature? The best lies, the most effective, a, mod, a sliver of truth, a modicum of truth in it. Okay, I'll post this on my, um, on my uh, website. But it could be the other way. You know? What do you I mean? mean? It could be that Right. As Rachel said, which is, you know, because they were, the Catholic Church was interpreting scripture and, and adding something to right. make it clearer. And so. I'll, leave, I'll leave that to, for everybody to judge. Right. I have a couple of books from a, a writer, I forgot his name, and he really goes into deep, deep dive in, in how we got the manuscripts, how they were assembled, and he goes through a bunch of different translations and documents. I got two books. And I haven't read them both yet. I may at some point. They're in my library, but I, I've used them to get some of this information. And a lot of my books in my library, I don't read right through, but I use them as point sources. I know they're there, and I know I can reference them for certain things that I want to understand a little bit better from somebody else's point of view who has the Holy Spirit. Remember what I said to you. The smart person does not know everything. The smart person, the wise person, knows where to go and get it. And ask God not to give you the knowledge so much as bring you to the people that he has already given it to and to point you in the direction to only those who will give you the truth. And that's what's going to set you free. I'm no, se I'm no seminary student, but it doesn't matter. God gave me something to do, and this is what I've done, and this is, he's made it very easy. And he's going to make whatever he wants you to do easy. Just trust him, stay close to the Holy Spirit, and that's all I can tell you. But just be careful of the landlines out there. All right, so now we're going to actually go to the book of Genesis, uh, Exodus, not Genesis. Sorry, Steve, don't hit me. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. So you can go to Exodus, uh, just, just go to the beginning of Exodus. We've got a little bit of chunk of change of time here left, so we'll, we'll get through it. So now, the beginning of Exodus, we started getting to the point of talking about Moses. The word Exodus in Hebrew means the outgoing. Just for reference, Genesis covers the period from the beginning of creation, which is really, by all indicators, in September, what would have been September, and I forgot the exact day, but it would have been Rosh Hashanah, in September of 4004 B.C. And if you, if you don't know that or, or never heard me say that before, also the sign, the star that, that indicated that Jesus Christ was there was that special sign. Read my notes in Genesis about how God uses the, the cadence and the, the cycles of the stars and the lights that he put into motion, and you'll get the whole picture. But be that as it may, I'm going to still personally assume that the world and, and Adam and everything was created in what would have been Rosh Hashanah, 4004 B.C. Now, Genesis then would have covered that period, because in the beginning, God, and it covers that period to the death of Joseph, which happens in 1805 B.C., all right, so it's quite a span of time. And we spent a lot of time in Genesis to cover all the shenanigans <laughs> that have happened in that time. I reviewed, I'm not going to do it now, it's in my notes, a, a basic review of the chapter structure of Exodus um, and, and what, it, what it goes on. We're not going to take a detailed study here. Um, we're going to go through some very important pieces today. So let's turn to Exodus uh, 2 and verse 1. And just to review here, we're not going to read all of this, but Pharaoh now has ordered that there be a genocide against Israel. Remember, anybody remember why he doesn't like it? First of all, it's a different Pharaoh. We talked about that. 
because their birth rate was so high. And he was concerned that they were going to consume the land. Now remember, we mentioned this before, that God, before Joseph died and all of that was ended, and there were 70 people in the land of Egypt, 70 Israelis, Israelites in the land of Egypt, he gave them land in Goshen, in the district of Ramses. Pharaoh's, this new Pharaoh is going to want to reverse all that. So now, Moses is born. If you go down to Exodus chapter 2 and verse 7, actually uh, verses, verse 2 and 5, Exodus chapter 2 and verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds. Now you know that Moses is in this pitch-covered basket because his mother wanted to save this special son, this beautiful son, from being executed by Pharaoh because what was his order? To execute all the babies. So she did that, and God, of course, knew that was going to happen, and he made provision for this one called Moses. So she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, here is the daughter of Pharaoh who knows the edict that her father made. But God sent her because he knew she had a soft spot for little babies. And she wanted this baby. And whatever Pharaoh's daughter wants, she get. And it just so, quote unquote, happens that Pharaoh's daughter is not nursing. She's, she has no milk to give. So what happens? The servant says, get, get a nursemaid. And who's the nursemaid? Isn't that great? God is awesome because God's got a plan. But Satan's also watching this. So remember, this is a chess game. There's move and counter move, move and counter move. So he, Moses is both fought. Now, Moses grows up, and Moses was destined to take a race of slaves and mold them into a powerful nation, the most powerful and most noted nation, or will be the most powerful in history when their time does come in the kingdom. But he didn't know any of this for a long time. Moses, anyway, now he's in Pharaoh's house. Doesn't this sound familiar? Wasn't Joseph in Pharaoh's house and God used him to do great things? We roll forward in time from that point to Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's court. God always puts his point men, his moles, his Navy SEALs, his, his uh, CIA, NSA agents smack dab into the front lines like it's infiltrating the mafia, you know? That's what he does. By the way, you think he might do that with some of us today? If you are ever brought before a principality, a governor, or a senator, or a king, or a priest, obviously you will know, you should know, that it's not a coincidence. God puts you there. And even though, like Moses, you may go kicking and screaming, he puts you in front of kings and priests, or, government, or governors, or senators, or whatever it is, because he wants you to do something. Never forget, your life is always being driven by God for opportunities to do something. And guess what we're going to be judged on? What we did. You know, I had, a, I had to have a paradigm sh shift in my own thinking. That's how I live my life now. I'm always cognizant that no matter where I am, I could be there for a distinct purpose and not just to brush my teeth, comb my hair, and go to work every day. And everybody in my eyes is somebody that God may be placed me in front of or a situation he may put me into. And you know what? The more you look for those things, I guarantee you, the more you will find them. Mark my words on that. You try it. You walk this life cognizant of the fact that you're a tool in God's hands and he never puts you down. You're a screwdriver. You're a plier. You are a Bunsen. No, you're a torch. And let me see. What's Bob? Bob is a... A hammer. <laughs> That's good. I like it. And these tools, you tools, God never, ever puts back on that workbench. He's 
always ready. You be ready. You know when you're a hammer, they say, everything looks like a nail? I don't know what with pliers, a, a torch, I don't know. Everything looks like it needs to be burned. We're going to talk about that in a minute. There's a bush that needs to be burned in a minute here. A welded, that's it, yeah. But we're going to be talking about a bush that needs to be burned here shortly. Good. Somehow, right. Somehow doing something. Good. Exactly. And that's a lesson, I'll tell you, that when you first start really learning it, you have to remind yourself, right? You probably had to do that. And now when you get to the point of, of it becomes part of you, you just live that way. Yeah, like anything else. That's right. You're exactly right. And, and that's the best way to put it. Just live your life. Oh, New concept. Live your life for the Lord. <laughs> I know we all do. I'm just trying to focus us because these are the things that I found and Bob has found. And, and this is what we see here. God prepares people before they're born. Like he said to Jeremiah, I knew you before, before I was in my mother's womb. The same for us. Our plans have already been laid out from birth to death. It's just what you do with them when you meet the Lord that's going to be judged at the beam seat. So that's it. All right. Let's use the rest of our time here to get through this. Moses now grows up, he's in, the, he's in Pharaoh's house, and he is, he is doing whatever he's doing there, and he's, don't forget, he's trained up in the ways of Pharaoh, because he was a baby, being brought up by Pharaoh's daughter in Pharaoh's household, but he was a Hebrew. He comes out... He knew that because his mother taught him while she was nursing him and training him training at that point, right. four probably four years old. And he was very young when he had to disengage from his mother, but it was always here. Absolutely right. Train them up in the way they should go, and from it they will not soon depart. So Moses was destined to do this. Moses, if you remember the story, I'll just go over it real quickly. Moses is outside, and, he's, and he, he kills an Egyptian because he sees an Egyptian treating one of the Hebrews badly. And then he hides the body. Later, Moses observes two Hebrew men fighting. Now, not even an Egyptian this time. And he goes over there to break them up. And one of the men makes it known that he knows that Moses killed the Egyptian. So now Moses is looking to his left and looking to his right, and also he's trying to break up a fight between two brothers, two Hebrew men. And one of them says, are you going to kill me like you're going to kill the Egyptian? That's it. Turn to Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. Moses now continues along, just overview here, right? He marries Zipporah, the daughter of the priest of Midian, and stays in Midian, because usually the men go where their wives live. That's, I was coming up to Maine, though, before I married Rachel, but we stayed. She actually said to me, I'd move back to New York with you. And I knew she loved me at that point. Because I wouldn't even move back to New York with me. <laughs> Think about that one. <laughs> so I stayed in Midian. I mean Maine. So, so he, he marries Zipporah and he moves to Midian. And he stays in Midian for how many years? Forty years. There's also someone who was in the wilderness for 40 days. Just a parallel for you. So this is a big training ground for Moses, isn't it? It's also the time in the wilderness was, if you want to think of it this way, a proving ground for Jesus. He had to be tempted of the devil, totally hungry for those 40 days. Remember, that was the first thing he did in this public ministry. Before he started really doing anything, he had to go out into that wilderness. This is what Moses did as well. He had to be prepared. Well, I'm going to just kind of cut some time here. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 4. You know, Moses is tending his flock. He's just doing what he's normally doing, living good old life. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. 
Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses said, hmm, I think I'll go over and take a look at this. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from the, within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now, you pretty much know the rest of the story. God is talking to Moses and he's saying to him, I know my people are in bondage. Moses knows this too. He's going to give Moses his assignment. I want to, I want to stop here because there, this is where we're going to end up today because we've got about 10 minutes. I want, to, I want you to understand the importance, the sheer magnitude, the, the sheer importance of this burning bush. And you may know some of it already, but I want to go a little deeper with it because this is one of those junctures we're going to stop at and we're going to just dwell on this for the rest of our time here. While I was preparing this, one of the parallels, you know, I'm always trying to, like you do, when you, when you read something, God will put something in your mind and all of a sudden the light bulb will come on. Well, when I was reading this, it entered my mind that I'd never thought of before, actually this morning when I was preparing this, that Exodus 3, verses 7 through 12, where God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people, and he goes through all of that, and he tells, tells Moses, I'm going to send you to save them, to get them out of it. And, God, and Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? So I'm reading that. And I realized how closely that piece of the story maps into our job as Christians. Listen, here's number one. God sees the misery of his people, arguably, and again, my point of view, but this is what I thought this morning, arguably a reference to predestination throughout the centuries for those whom he knows that will accept the price paid by Jesus Christ. Because if he knows they're going to accept him, the only thing that has to be done is that option has to be brought to them. Who's to do it? Who's to help save them out of the Egypt, which they're destined to be saved out of? Us. Who's to help the Israelites that they don't even know this yet, but they're destined to be saved out of? Moses. You get my point? The people that God sends you to, to help bring them to Christ, have already been selected or predestined somehow, some way. The only thing is, is he's using you and me and maybe others to bring them to understanding of what their destiny is. Does that make sense? Number two. God's planned release of these from bondage to sin and the world's ways was typified by Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world, and his people are in that world. Number three, the bringing of his people through Moses' intervention, of course, his power, you know, God's power, to the promised land. Because what was the point of not only getting them out of Egypt, but what? To bring them safely to the land that was promised to them back in Genesis. The promised land, the land of what? Flowing of milk and honey. Where do you think we're destined? What did Abraham show faith in? A city that was built by God, seen afar off. That's where we're headed. And ours is to bring those already predestined to go in our time while we're living here and breathing. You will never, ever get somebody to believe in the gospel who is not predestined to go. I don't know how all that works, but I do know that not everybody's going to heaven. Not everybody you and I witness to even listen. Yeah, it's true. You can't talk someone into that. You cannot, and I've made that mistake. Yeah. All I now is just be the sower of the seed. You sow the seed and let God take care of the dinging and the dunging and the, and the watering. If you try to do all that, you will burn yourself out and you will disappoint yourself all the time. And you will think that you are no good as a Christian. Wrong answer. Believe me, I went through it. That's a very good point. Thank you. Point four. The Christians being prepared for and led to do good works, the basis of which is assistance in gathering his chosen and readying them for the release from the Egypt of this world. That's what your good works are for, isn't it? Five, the Christian being left in Egypt, remember, 
Why are we still here after we say? Why doesn't does the Lord favor us and get us out of here? Because we are being left in Egypt like, remember, Moses was in Midian. Now he had to go back to this hellhole called Egypt to do God's work, to be salt and light to his people. We are there to be, we are in Egypt to be salt and light, to be persecuted as we go about our assignment to tell the governmental powers and the strong anti-God religious powers to let his people go so that they may worship him in this wilderness. Have you ever experienced the who am I and what should I do? How can I go about doing this syndrome? I have. If God puts you in a position, like look at all the brothers that we have, brothers and sisters that are suffering in these Muslim countries that are being executed or under the threat of death, our missionaries, they're in Egypt and they are trying to convince the people around them of what they should know and yet they are subject to the government, the pharaohs of those principalities and they could at any moment be put to death. Six, once all is done and God ends the church age, and he will, you know that this is a finite time that we're in. It's this parenthetical time that I've talked about since Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection until when? Till when? When does it end? Right, the rapture, the beginning of the tribulation. The rapture is a result of that. That's the end, the official end of the church age where the church is taken out because that's when judgment comes. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. Once all is said and done and, and the church age ends, we are all called home to worship God for eternity on his holy mountain in heaven. Because God said to Moses here, I will bring you out and you will worship God on the mountain, on this mountain. Okay, for them that was Mount Moriah in Jerusalem in, in the land of Canaan. For us, it's heaven. Number seven, the process repeats itself after the tribulation of salvation. How? Because God is a God of mercy. It starts with the 144,000 Jews of, out of the 12 tribes of Israel that are left on this earth when the church goes away. Because who will be left on this earth out of the three groups of people during the tribulation? Jews and everybody else. Christians will be gone. There's 144,000 base Jews, sort of like the 5,000 on the day of Pentecost, who form the nucleus of spreading the gospel. It's going to take a little bit more. That's why I look at it, even though it's not a church, but it's 144,000 of these base people who will learn, who will see Messiah for who he is and spread that gospel throughout the world, but under a lot more pain of death and threat of death than we have to. It will probably be that proportionately, the yield, proportionately now, the yield of salvation for them will be much greater than the yield of salvation for us throughout the whole church age. It's going to be the greatest time of evangelism where you and I may save one person or two persons or three persons or by our extended family through missionaries. Maybe you and I may have a yield of maybe 100, 100 salvations per lifetime. You know what I'm saying? They're going to be maybe thousands per person yield because that's what's going to happen. So here's the point. And I think it's about time. We're going to have to quit in a minute here. But we're going to finish this up next week or the week after because it's very important to know this. It is important to note that the burning bush set before Moses was not some sort of random tumbleweed. In rabbinical tradition even, it was an acacia bush, the thorn bush of the desert. It's very strong in rabbinical circles that this bush was a thorn bush, an acacia bush. The acacia wood, if we're going to see this as we move forward into the building of the tabernacle, which is in Exodus toward the, toward the end of it, there's a lot of acacia wood used in the building of the Temple of Influence and including the building of the Ark of the Covenant. Acacia wood is very important. And 
One of the major factors of an acacia bush is its thorns. In scripture, all the way from Genesis, throughout the history, thorns are used. And the first real instance was when? I'll read it to you. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from this tree, which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat of it. Now, we're going to have to stop here. But I want you to dwell on something, because we're going to pick up here next time we meet. If you'd like to, because I have it here, you can look at my notes. Well, you, I'm not going to put all of these notes in yet, because I only want to put the notes in up to where I stop. But you can start looking, if you have Bible software, or you do it manually, look up the word thorns, plural. See how many times it comes up. And I want you to see. Here's the basic point. The thorn is a symbol of judgment. It's the result of sin. Thorns. And there's a lot of scriptural proof we're going to go into that. But this bush, this thorn bush, never burned up because this is judgment that this conclusion is not consumption. What was pictured in this burning bush was sin being burned but not consumed. I mean, the sin is consumed, but the judgment does not consume the bush. It was pointing to the grace of God. And Jesus Christ wore what when he was crowned the king of the Jews? The crown of thorns. So it started out with thorns for Adam, and it ends with a crown of thorns for Jesus. Remember I told you back in Genesis that this is a race between God and Satan? And there is a king, the original king was Adam. This is a whole line of the scepter of the line of Judah not departing. Remember we went through all that? The whole race here is at the end of the age, who will be the king? Will it be Satan's human king to be crowned the king of the world, and then of course everything else because he inherits it, or will it be the human as well as God king? Remember, remember, Jesus had to be human to be Messiah, to be crowned, and then become the king of the world and then have everything handed to him for eternity. Who wins? Well, we know who wins. But I've got a lot more to tell you about this when we meet next time. And then we're going to go into the law and the tabernacle, and you're going to be amazed at all the symbolism of that. And then we're going to finish the book of Exodus. Okay? Have a great uh, two weeks, and uh, God willing, I'll see you not next week, but the week after. Thank you, Mike. You're very welcome.